Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the deepening divisions in Israeli society as demonstrations over the future of Israel democracy and against Netanyahu's power grab mount, with the country's national security itself on the line as military reservists and IDF pilots threaten mutiny while Netanyahu's right-wing religious nationalist government panders to the ultra-Orthodox who do not participate in the military or defend the country as they live off welfare. Joining us is Dr. Guy Ziv, a professor at American University School of International Service who has worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. He's the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres, and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. Then we'll look into an alarming report from Danish scientists predicting that global warming could push the Atlantic past a tipping point, leading to the collapse of the Gulf Stream current as early as 2025. Joining us is Monica Medina, President and CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Society, who until recently served as Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans, Environment and Science and Special Envoy for Biodiversity and Water Resources at the United States Department of State. Previously, she served as a Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, where she led efforts on Arctic conservation and restoration of the Gulf of Mexico after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Then finally, with Ron DeSantis surviving a car accident unscathed while his campaign crashes as it burns through dwindling donations, we'll look into the comparisons between the rise and fall of Governor Scott Walker and the rise and fall of Governor DeSantis and speak with John Nichols, a national affairs correspondent for The Nation. He has written, co-written, or edited over a dozen books on topics ranging from histories of American socialism and the Democratic Party to analyses of U.S. and global media systems. His latest book, co-written with Senator Bernie Sanders, is the New York Times bestseller, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, and we'll discuss his latest article at The Nation, Ron DeSantis is Starting to Look Like a Scott Walker-Level Loser. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now, Dr. Guy Ziv, a professor at American University School of International Service, who has worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. He's the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres, and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Guy Ziv. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Guy. And things are pretty, uh, a lot of turmoil and division in Israel that I think it's never been seen before. And there's concern that this division and these demonstrations and the standoff with the Netanyahu government could go on for months. It's actually having an effect now on Israel's economy and its credit. Morgan Stanley just cut Israel's sovereign credit to a dislike stance and the uh, shekel has fallen to a three-year low down 10% since November. And obviously, I want to talk to you about what's happening within the Israeli Defense Forces. But how do you see this crisis and where do you think it's heading? Well, first, I think we need to see this as part of a broader struggle for the soul of Israel. You have the liberal, pluralistic democracy that Israel's founders had envisioned, um, according to Israel. Israel doesn't have a constitution, but it has a declaration of independence that explicitly uh, calls for uh, kind of full social and political equality for all of its citizens. And uh, and this is the, the kind of more pluralistic and, and liberal vision that, that Israel's, most of uh, 
uh, the founding generations, and really most Israelis could identify with. And that Israel has been slipping away. And yesterday's vote was just the latest victory of the national right, which has made tremendous strides in moving Israel in an increasingly illiberal and, and less tolerant and more religious direction. Uh, and so we have seen kind of the rise of the far right that is also represented in the current government, which is the most religious and right-wing government Israel has ever had. So is that to say, as, as some supporters of Israel over here, I just noticed an interview with Peter Beinhardt on TV last night, where he was suggesting that this uh, religious right government in Israel now that has both authoritarian and theocratic tendencies in, is also quite brutally anti-Palestinian and has huge supports from the settler movement, who are the ones that come in and do counter-demonstrations against the people that are demonstrating against Netanyahu and his so-called court reform agenda. The suggestion is that the same kind of right-wing, authoritarian, theocratic treatment of the Palestinians is now being meted by the same people on, on the Israeli secular citizens. Do you see it in that way? Well, there's a clear connection between the occupation and the kind of broader uh, desire to preserve Israeli democracy, which, of course, has some contradictions here, right, when it comes to um, uh, how to deal with uh, the Palestinians in, in the occupied territories. Uh, I, I do think the point you, you made about, uh, about the counter-demonstrations or the, the counter-demonstrators coming from the settlements is, is a very important point that should be highlighted. I think it's lost on a lot of people that all the support, or not all, but most of the support for the government and for this kind of the, the, the uh, overhaul, the judicial overhaul, uh, comes from that sector, right? It comes from either the messianic religious right, most of which is the kind of the, the, settler, the settlements, the settlers who are living in the West Bank, who are bussed over to Tel Aviv to attend the, the recent uh, pro-government demonstration. And, and then you also have ultra-Orthodox, um, the ultra-Orthodox community uh, with, has its own interests. They're less concerned about the occupation and the territories and more concerned about their desire to uh, maintain their way of, of life, uh, which, which of course consists of studying the Torah for males and, uh, and, and deferments to the army. And, uh, and of course, there's a vested interest for Netanyahu himself personally given his corruption trials. Uh, all of them have different interests for supporting a weekend uh, Supreme Court. And that, I think, is, uh, is what this is all about. But yes, there is a connection uh, and a strong one between the, the people pushing for this uh, overhaul, for this judicial overhaul, and uh, those who seek to, uh, to maintain and, and annex uh, parts or the entire, if not the entire uh, West Bank. So let's talk about then what's happening with the Israeli Defense Forces, because therein lies a real contrast, doesn't it, Guy, where you have serving and reserve officers and, and enlisted men saying that they may not show up for duty. At the same time, the, the so-called judicial overhaul is being pushed by the theocratic ultra-Orthodox parties, who are a key to Netanyahu's coalition, and they basically want to preserve the rights of their people, particularly the men, to study the Torah all day and not do military service. So that's a pretty stark contrast. And if I were an young Israeli in the military, I, I would be kind of annoyed that I'm having to do national service. But these other Torah students who... I think live off the government, don't they? Aren't they on on the dole essentially? Heavy I mean, subsidies, yeah. Heavy, heavy subsidies. Heavy subsidies. So therein is surely some tension, surely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, these tensions have been there for quite some time, uh, and they have, as I said, they have their own kind of demands. And uh, Netanyahu has to balance out all these demands in order to maintain his government. Uh, but but the danger of these uh, reservists saying they're not going to 
they're not going to uh, fulfill their 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 duties is very dangerous for the stability of the IDF for the cohesion the social cohesion this was this has been called the people's army even though that's a little bit of a myth since not every israeli uh, serves but still the army is is one of the most important institutions in israeli society and you have something unprecedented happen which is the most elite units are saying we're not going to go and volunteer and i'm talking about the pilots for example those are the ones that are uh responsible for carrying out the the very uh dangerous and uh exclusive operational missions in syria and gaza uh if there ever were an attack on iran and i sure hope there isn't but if there were those would be the ones called to do so and i think they're afraid of uh serving under an authoritarian government which is why they've made it very clear that they intend to uh to boycott um their reserve duty so guy are they also afraid that netanyahu might do a, a sort of wag the tail kind of operation where in order to calm down or distract or even unify the Israeli people, there might be some military action designed to either distract from the troubles he's having in the demonstrations or or even a cynical attempt to uh, basically pull everybody together around a common threat. I think that is uh, very clearly on their minds, and many of them have said so publicly. Well, They are not willing to risk their lives for... Uh, for an authoritarian uh, government. They're not willing to do something that they consider to be illegitimate. Um, and as I said, this is unprecedented. We haven't seen this before. Well, the Netanyahu government are promoting a viral video that has an imaginary scene where an infantryman is penned down by enemy fire and he radios for air support and the pilot above him replies, do you support or not support the reform?" And then the the video clip ends with the dying soldier turning to the camera and saying, my brothers from right and left, politics cannot be brought into the army. So that's a pretty naked attempt, isn't it, for Netanyahu to deal with this problem? Yes, it's been politicized in in many ways, this being just kind of the latest. uh, But um, I I really do think that uh, he's got a huge problem on his hands because the 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 army and uh, and the economy, and uh, to some extent, uh, U.S.'s relations are going to be affected by this, uh, and this is all happening uh, on his watch, and uh, and and he has only himself to blame because he's the one who could have stopped this from happening, um, and he also was well aware of the implications. A lot of people said he uh, really didn't know, and it's somebody should really persuade him. And uh, President Biden spoke out. Uh, I spoke with him both privately and publicly uh, to try to urge him to slow down. Um, many of his own uh, associates uh, did the same, but he's well aware uh, of the implications. This is not his first rodeo. I think at the end of the day, though, he understood that if he uh, were to stop this legislation, if he, if he were to even postpone the vote yesterday, there was a good chance that one of his coalition partners, one or more, would pull out and he would lose his coalition. Uh, and he would not be able to form another government. This is it. So I think he put his political and personal interests ahead of uh, national security and economic interests. Well, but that's the main accusation, isn't it, that, that he's doing this in order to stay out of jail? Uh, I think that's right. I think part of it is power, um, I, I, kind of an inability to, uh, to let go, to relinquish power. Uh, and yeah. Part of it is definitely the ongoing trial, the ongoing corruption trial. There there are three cases. And uh, as long as he is prime minister, he has little to worry about. Um, And the next step could very well be firing the attorney general who has been, who's kind of seen as antagonistic towards him and and not supporting uh, him or his government. So I think that's something that uh, a number of, of his coalition partners have spoken openly about. Um, and uh, and so we'll see if that happens, but he definitely has a vested interest in uh, seeing these kind of legal changes take place. But that's going to pour more gasoline on the fire, isn't it, Guy? Yeah, I think some, uh, I think some of the people surrounding him really believed that this would kind of fizzle out 
that people would be tired. Um, but that's not at all what we're seeing. We're seeing the kind of the battle to preserve Israeli democracy is actually far from over. So yes, yesterday was a very dark day for democracy. In fact, every newspaper in Israel today featured a black cover informing its readers that it was a dark day for democracy in Israel. Um, we see uh, polls showing there was there's no way that uh, Netanyahu would be able to uh, to form a coalition if elections were held today. Uh, and people are out on the streets. We've seen uh, hundreds of thousands of Israelis uh, for 30 weeks in a row out on the streets. That's nearly a quarter of every Israeli citizen who has participated in one or more of these demonstrations. Uh, Tom Friedman said it was the most significant democracy promotion grassroots initiative that he's ever covered. And, um, and, and we see no sign of that fizzling out at all. On the contrary, uh, yesterday's vote may have actually mobilized and motivated even more Israelis uh, to get out there on the streets and, uh, and protest. And, uh, uh, and we'll see. We'll see, uh, we'll see where this takes them. Well, apparently Tom Friedman had a meeting with Biden and Biden encouraged him to write an op-ed. And this is after Biden met with Israel's President Herzog, who they tried to work out a compromise deal with uh, Netanyahu, but he basically spurned both Israel's president and America's president. So um, there's no love lost, I guess, between Biden and Netanyahu. But it seems unlikely that Biden's going to take the advice of two former U.S. ambassadors to Israel, Martin Indyk and Dan Kurzer, who are both suggesting that it's time for the United States to reconsider military assistance to Israel. And Israel, of course, is the largest recipient of U.S. aid. Yeah, I mean, just the only thing I would, I would maybe take issue with is the, the uh, you said there's no love lost between Biden and uh Netanyahu. And that may or may not be true, but um, I don't think you'll find uh, a more uh, a kind of a stronger defender of Israel uh, than, than President Biden, who has for decades, I think, felt very sincerely about Israel's security and, and I think still does. And he actually uh, calls Netanyahu a friend, I think, to this very day. And I think Netanyahu does others. But this is this is beyond the personal dimension here. I think there was definitely a lot of uh, animosity between President Obama and Netanyahu, less so in this case, but it could very well evolve into something bigger. I think that the, the larger issue here is that Netanyahu has taken steps to alienate the Democratic Party here. And so you're going to see more and more voices that call for restricting aid or, or conditioning aid to Israel. We're seeing a younger generation of Americans, including Jewish Americans, and that's Israel's largest and most important diaspora who have, um, who really do not see eye to eye, they don't have much in common with the radical right in Israel that is in power right now. And so I do think, I don't think there's, there's gonna be, I don't think foreign aid is gonna be slashed in the immediate future, but the fact that it's being raised by, you know, two former ambassadors, the fact that uh, members of Congress are actually talking about it, or at least some are, uh, tells you that uh, trouble lies ahead. Um, uh, but but this, the, the real issue here is that you've taken what used to be a bipartisan uh, uh, kind of bipartisan support for Israel for decades. I mean, since Israel's uh, founding, and that that's becoming less and less of the case, uh, where, where Democrats are uh, kind of uh, going going in a very different direction from the Netanyahu-led uh, governments. Uh, and Netanyahu, of course, has a lot to do with it uh, himself. So, just in closing, then, guy. Is that not to say, though, and obviously Biden has been very loyal to Israel, but I, I mean, first of all, he hasn't, he hasn't agreed on Netanyahu having a visit to the United States, which is something that Netanyahu wants, and instead he had the president come. So there's obviously some tension there. But it's my understanding that Netanyahu would prefer to have Donald Trump come back. He shamelessly, openly campaigned for Trump, and he's clearly supports the Republicans and not the Democrats. And and there's no question that his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is close to uh, Netanyahu. So is that a subtext that Netanyahu really wants Trump to come back? I mean, is that is that a fair statement? Yes. Uh, I think that this goes... I think Netanyahu is very much a Republican and aligns himself with Republican politics. 
Um, a lot of people have forgotten that when uh, Netanyahu first came to power in 1996, he did not get along well at all with uh, President Clinton. And, and while this, there wasn't any kind of major public confrontation, it was very clear to observers of the U.S. relationship that uh, that uh, Bill Clinton was not a big fan of Netanyahu's, and um, and there were definitely some underlying tensions. And then when President Obama became president, uh, once again we saw um, kind of uh, an even greater animosity and, and kind of mutual antipathy, I would say, between uh, Netanyahu and uh, the U.S. Democratic president. Um, and when uh, when Obama ran for re-election in 2012, Netanyahu actually thought that Romney might have a shot at it and invited pres- uh, invited uh, Senator Romney to Israel in the midst of the campaign just to stick it to uh, President Obama. And then, of course, a couple years later, uh, addressed the joint session of Congress, undermining uh, the Iran nuclear deal, which, of course, was President Obama's kind of signature foreign policy achievement. And so, uh, yeah, this is this is uh, not a new phenomenon. Netanyahu is much, much more comfortable with Republicans and with Trump in particular, uh, whom he once called uh, or likened to Cyrus the Great, because Trump essentially allowed Netanyahu to uh, do as he sees fit without any kind of pressure. Indeed. Uh, just in closing, Guy, when Clinton first met with Netanyahu in the Oval Office, after the meeting, Clinton was so furious, he turns to his aides and said, who's the effing superpower around here? So Exactly. And I, I was going to say that, and I thought, how am I going to say that in a, in a uh, clean way? But I think you just did that. <laughs> well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, Guy. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Guy Ziv, who's a professor at American University School of International Service, who has worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. And he's the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres, and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. We're going to take a brief station break back looking at an alarming report from Danish scientists predicting that global warming could push the Atlantic past a tipping point leading to the collapse of the Gulf Stream current as early as 2025. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Monica Medina, the President and CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Society, who until recently served as Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans, Environment, and Science, and a Special Envoy for Biodiversity and Water Resources at the United States Department of State. Previously, she was Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, where she led efforts on Arctic conservation and restoration of the Gulf of Mexico after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Welcome to Background Briefing, Monica Medina. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Monica. And there's an alarming study coming out of the University of Copenhagen Niels Bohr Institute, published in the journal Nature Communications, that suggests that global warming could push the Atlantic current, the Gulf Stream, past a tipping point this century, and that the Gulf Stream could collapse as early as 2025. So that is really and truly alarming. How did it strike you? Uh, I think like it strikes anyone who's paying attention to these issues. It's incredibly alarming. And it does uh, provide yet another wake-up call for us to quickly transition away from fossil fuels as much as we possibly can. Because until we do that, we'll continue to see the worsening of these impacts of the climate crisis. Nature and forests and peatlands are one way that we can really help ourselves in the meantime. So the more we can protect nature and biodiversity, the better off we'll be. Uh, it will protect our food systems, our health systems. And we know that 
the more we can do now, the better. We have to not only cut our consumption of fossil fuels, cut our emissions, but we also need to find better ways to store carbon than putting it into the ocean. So, Monica, the Danish scientists have used data that goes back from 1870 to 2020. And they believe that the data they've used and the mathematical properties of a tipping point-like system that they extrapolate has led them to predict that the Atlantic circulation could collapse around mid-century, though it could potentially occur as early as 2025 or as late as 2095. So they go back a long way, but I guess there's a bit of latitude in there. So what does that tell us? I mean, it could collapse in two years' time, or if we get our act together, we've got a window, right? Well, I think it does tell us we need to move as quickly as we possibly can. And it's another of these tipping points, and there are several out there. Um, There are many that climate scientists have identified. There are several others that are also um, being Uh, used as examples of how the climate crisis is worsening, things like coral reef die-offs, the Amazon rainforest um, being uh, at a a tipping point as well. Um, So it's not as if there's only one. It's another signal that the climate, uh, that the, the Earth's climate is out of whack and that we are driving it through our own actions. So it's on us to redouble our efforts to, uh, to, to change our ways. And, and what matters here, why this one is so scary, is because it impacts so many people uh, that um, had thought themselves to be immune from the climate crisis, unlike uh, the, the um, regions in, uh, the, near the equator that are warming so rapidly. Um, we, we would experience this in the northeastern United States tremendously through sea level rise, and uh, Europe would experience it through a much cooler temperatures than they've had in the past. They've had this sort of warming effect from the Gulf Stream all along the northern part of Europe that would change dramatically if these weather patterns shifted because the Gulf Stream were to be interrupted by uh, this warming ocean water. So tell us about the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, AMOC, apparently uh, pronounced EMOC or IMOC. It's uh, an important part of the way the Earth cools itself, um, and uh, it stabilizes our climate by providing a great big circulation, a big conveyor belt of ocean water. It moves very, very slowly But if it's totally interrupted, it would disrupt the way weather patterns have worked for thousands and thousands of years. So it would be a huge disruption for farmers, uh, for people who live along the coastline, because uh, it would it would mean that there would be a lot more warming of the ice sheets in Greenland that um, have kept us from having such cold temperatures say, in Europe, or had um, kept our sea level from rising so much because it's all trapped up in the Arctic in ice. So it's a really important stabilizer for the Earth's climate. And again, it's another sign that our oceans are in in jeopardy and and another sign that we really need to do everything that we can to, uh, to try to get our emissions under control of these greenhouse gases to to cut our use of fossil fuels, and to preserve nature everywhere we can as a natural sink for those carbon emissions. Well, the IMOC, or AMOC, has apparently already slowed down, and the whole point is it sort of slows down and collapses. So you have a kind of Sargasso Sea phenomenon. But it's already at its weakest in 1,600 years, owing to global warming. So... That's the, that's the fear. That's the phenomenon. It's slowing down, but it could literally stop in a couple of years. Is that what this, this new report tells us? This new report says that it's possible. Now, th- this is just one study, and I don't want uh, everyone to think that this is definitive. It is one study, and we do need to continue to study the ocean to understand its incredible impact on our climate. We need to understand how this particular 
phenomenon in the ocean, this, the Gulf Stream, that I think many people understand from their basic science class in, in elementary school is a really important part of the way our weather forecast, our weather uh, patterns have, have been um, kept in, in a very normal uh, range of temperatures and, um, and rainfall. Uh, but now with it um, being disrupted, it could really change what we know of as normal weather. And we've already seen a lot of these sort of impacts. I think that's why the climate crisis is um, becoming much more a part of the way people are, the things that people worry about um, when, when it comes to their future, because they see it happening today. But that doesn't mean that we have to be uh, uh, frozen, if you will, um, and paralyzed with with uh, just an overwhelming sense that we, there's nothing we can do about this because we do have some things that we can still control. We haven't reached all these tipping points that the scientists have pointed to. We are we are dangerously close on a few, but if we continue to move in the direction that we are, changing our our energy use to much more renewable power so that we are not emitting so many greenhouse gases. If we continue to look for solutions, if we continue to conserve nature, we can hopefully keep the worst of the climate crisis uh, from happening. And again, you know, this AMOC uh, uh, circulatory pattern, the Gulf Stream, yes, it is slowing, but it's a slow system. So if we could, if we could just do the things that we're doing now, but more of them and more quickly, I think there is um, a reason to believe that we can save off the worst of the climate crisis. But there's already evidence, surely, in Florida now, uh, Monica, with water temperatures in the Keys in, in South Florida, over yeah. 95 degrees. I mean, that's like getting into a hot tub, isn't it? Yes, it is. And and it is concerning. And, and I think scientists have been have been talking about that over the last few weeks. People in the Gulf, in the Gulf and in uh, along the coast of Florida are experiencing it for themselves. Apparently, off the coast of the Keys yesterday, the, the temperature at five feet deep uh, in the water was over 100 degrees, which would set a world record for the warmest ocean water um, and, and uh, by a several degrees. So it's, it would break the record by a lot. It would shatter that record. So it is concerning. Again, we see the alarm bells everywhere. I think if people are looking, they understand that this is not a typical summer with the kind of heat wave we've experienced across the southern United States, with the fires as far north in Canada, with the incredible storms that we've seen already um, in places like India, with the heat wave in China, we know that this is not um, a typical summer. This is um, something that we really need to use as a motivator to get us to make the changes that we need to in order to try to stabilize the climate while there's still time. Well, just in closing, in terms of the water temperature in Florida, that means that what's left of the coral reefs are going to be bleached, right? I mean, the, that's already lost, the coral reefs. Well, the coral reefs are, um, have been, have been uh, severely damaged in many parts of the world. But what we see is when we protect those areas um, with, from other stressors and, uh, and the, you know, there are not so many other things that are that are damaging coral reefs. Um, they can adapt and they can come back. And there are efforts to find new corals that are much more heat resistant. But yes, it is devastating on coral reefs, uh, and it and it creates a much more acidic ocean as well. This change in the circulation pattern. So um, you see this uh, even in the Pacific Northwest, where um, the ocean is becoming more acidic, and uh, and we've seen heat waves in the ocean in the Pacific as well uh, at times. So we are we are definitely seeing big changes. You think about how big the ocean is, and it connects the whole entire planet. So it is really a key part of uh, of what's taking the brunt of the 
climate crisis, 90% of that excess heat goes right into the ocean, and we see those impacts right away. Well, Monica Medina, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me and for covering this very important topic. And again, I've been speaking with Monica Medina, who's the president and CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Society, who until recently served as Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans, Environment and Science and a Special Envoy for Biodiversity and Water Resources at the United States Department of State. Previously, she was Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, where she led the efforts on Arctic conservation and restoration of the Gulf of Mexico after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with Ron DeSantis surviving a car accident unscathed while his campaign crashes as it burns through dwindling donations. Don't go near the water. Don't you think it's sad What's happened to the water Our water's going bad Oceans, rivers, lakes and streams Have all been touched by man Poison floating out to sea Now threatens life on Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, John Nichols, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation. He's written, co-written, and edited over a dozen books on topics ranging from the histories of American socialism and the Democratic Party to analyses of U.S. and global media systems. And his latest book is co-written with Senator Bernie Sanders. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's okay to be angry about capitalism. And he has an article at The Nation, Ron DeSantis is starting to look like a Scott Walker-level loser. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Nichols. It's great to be with you, Ian. And and I have to say, I I even like the way that uh, headline sounds rolling off your tongue. (laughs) Well, I don't think Ron DeSantis would be particularly happy. And I doubt that he's listening to this uh, interview. But he did emerge uninjured from a a car accident today in Tennessee. But while he's okay, his campaign is increasingly looking like a train wreck. Yeah, well, of course, we hope the the, uh, governor is physically fine and and, because we never wish any ill on anybody in in that form. But from a political standpoint, uh, yeah, you are absolutely right. His campaign is kind of uh, going from crisis to crisis. Uh, there are a couple of new polls out uh, yesterday that were devastating for him. Uh, they showed that he's more than 40 points behind Donald Trump. Um, and it also that uh, while even amidst all of Trump's legal problems, Trump's numbers are actually going up, whereas DeSantis's numbers are collapsing. It's down in one poll, he went down from around 20 points to, I think, around 12 or 13 points. So, I mean, there's clearly just Republicans who had been considering him and even seriously thinking of voting for him uh, appear to be abandoning him at this point. At the same time, uh, he's been burning through money at an incredibly fast, uh, way faster than other candidates. And so while he's raised a lot of money from very wealthy, big donors, um, He's spent, you know, millions and millions of dollars for a huge staff and a lot of other uh, a lot of other choices, frankly, that have put his campaign in a financially perilous place. Uh, So he's shedding staff. I think about a third of staff is being laid off. And if that's not enough, there are signals from donors themselves that they're getting a little dubious about whether they want to write any more checks to this uh, campaign that that does indeed look as if the wheels are coming off. So um, as a result, uh, he's in pretty bad shape. And the polls you mentioned, uh, John, the Rasmussen poll has a DeSantis at 13%, with Trump 40, <laughs> 44 points ahead of him. And in spite of Trump's mounting legal problems, he's gained 10 points since yeah. the last Rasmussen poll. So he's going up and DeSantis is going down. And he doesn't really have any grassroots support. It's not like Bernie Sanders getting all the average $27 donations. There's nothing like that, is there? 
No, it's, you're exactly right. Uh, the DeSantis campaign is uh, very much a, a product of very big donors in uh, Florida and, and around the country who are looking for a very right-wing, very pro-corporate alternative to Donald Trump. Um, and what they hoped for was that DeSantis would you know, emerge as you know, a strong kind of governor with a reputation for getting things done and just not as crazy as Trump. The problem is that since he launched his campaign, two things have, have come through. Number one, DeSantis is pretty uh, ineffectual as a campaigner. He's not good with people. He doesn't uh, do very well with the retail politics. And so in states like Iowa and New Hampshire, where he needs to get traction, it's been very hard. Number two, um, to try and you know position himself against Trump, he has gone to extremes uh, in his statements about everything from education to health care and a host of other issues. Uh, his so-called war on woke um, has seen him taking such uh, far-right stands that he's actually looking scarier to a lot of folks than Donald Trump. And so the end result is that um, he's just had a very hard time uh, solidifying uh, the opposition to Trump within the Republican Party, let alone beyond it. And end result is that two months into his campaign, he's looking very weak. Well, thanks to Ron DeSantis and his anti-woke jihad, um, and woke, of course, is a dog whistle for blacks or for, yeah. or for people who support African-Americans and Black Lives Matter, etc. So it's in itself a, a dog whistle. But from now on, Florida's children will be learning that slavery was in part a beneficial job training program and that black Americans share the blame for the violence that white mobs inflicted on them and their communities in the 1920s and in Florida and, of course, um, as well as the race massacres in uh, Tulsa. So that goes beyond local politics. I mean, this is, this is going back to the, the Nazi book burners. It's quite ugly. And do you think that that is one thing that perhaps was an anti-woke move too far on his part? Oh, he's definitely gone too far. There's no question. And just, you know, look at the tenor of your question there where you're making, you know, comparisons to some of the ugliest uh, moments and the ugliest uh, developments in history. And, you know, whether people agree that it's gone that far, whether they, you know, agree with some of the comparisons that you just made, um, the reality is that there's a discomfort with the the uh, both the extremism of uh, DeSantis's positions, and also with um, the the kind of heavy referencing of it, that he comes back to this again and again and again. And so when candidates go out to Iowa trying to get elected president, or at least trying to get the nomination of their party, um, they talk a lot about farm issues. They talk a lot about, you know, rural development issues. Uh, in the cities of Iowa, they talk about, you know, industrial development and, and, and you know, jobs, things like that. These are these are real issues, inflation and, and um, the play out of the pandemic. These are things that, that folks want to talk about. This, this anti-woke stuff, uh, you know, whatever, you know, description we want to give to it or whatever tenor of the discussion about it, that's not what voters are, are demanding. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. It may be that some of these positions are popular within a very, very narrow sector of uh, Republican activists, but it, it's just not the mainstream. And um, and so as a result, um, you see a situation where if Republican voters are forced to choose between, say, a uh, Donald Trump and a, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis, you know, at this point, they may be very uncomfortable with Trump. They may recognize that Trump's got all these legal problems. They may be you know, scared of Trump on a whole host of fronts. But then you have DeSantis come along and he doesn't sound, you know, particularly better and you know he doesn't sound any any more rational if anything he may sound more dangerous and so as a result what's happened is uh, a twofold thing one trump has solidified some of his support at least you know within the base of the republican party also people are looking at other candidates and there are a lot of other republican candidates none of whom have gotten the traction of trump or even of desantis but you know i think that this is the danger for desantis he's in a at a point where it is very likely 
that uh, a substantial portion, perhaps all of his support, is going to you know start to drift toward um, other candidates, uh, and that's exactly what happened in 2016, 2015, 2016 to Scott Walker. Um, and you know sometimes you have these governors who get spun out of states where they've been very controversial, where they've been very extreme, and there's just a sense that you know they're really fighting the fight, blah blah blah. Uh, and they get a lot of good reporting on Fox News and places like that. But, um, you know, they don't they don't uh, really gain traction once they go out and talk to base Republican voters. That happened to Walker. And I think it's happening to DeSantis. So, th- so walk us through, uh, John, since you're there in Wisconsin, the real comparisons uh, between the kind of embrace by the right wing media of this new, fresh challenger that was a formidable challenger to Trump and likely to be the nominee and they're all falling over each other and obviously Rupert Murdoch pushed him for a while now apparently Murdoch's having second thoughts and thinking about Glenn Youngkin so walk us through these very real comparisons that you point out in your article in The Nation Ron DeSantis is starting to look like a Scott Walker level loser yeah, look, this is, uh, um, you know, the, the circumstance that we've seen develop uh, with DeSantis. It is very similar to Walker. And I remember watching the Walker campaign kind of go down in flames and, and you know, a lot of the same indications uh, here with DeSantis. So here's, here's what happens. Uh, in the uh, kind of Republican and conservative media echo chamber, uh, they like to spin up governors who they think are sort of alternatives to Washington. They attack Washington so often that they're looking for people who come from outside. Uh, And uh, the governors, especially governors who take on big fights in their states and do dramatic and controversial things, uh, such governors get a really good ride uh, on Fox and on right-wing talk radio. And that's what happened with Walker back when he took on labor unions in Wisconsin. It's what's happened to DeSantis as he has taken on school boards and elected district attorneys and others in uh, in Florida. And uh, the problem with this calculus, though, is that you have these candidates who, for one reason or another, may have, have gotten traction in their home states, you know, Walker, Wisconsin, DeSantis in Florida. And they may have had, you know, relatively successful political careers in that regard and, and given their due. But when you try to transfer this to the national stage and you're actually talking about you know, such an individual becoming president of the United States, commander in chief, et cetera. Um, then voters, I think, tend to start to look differently at these candidates. And, and that's clearly what happened to Walker. Walker started out leading in the polls. Um, he ended up with uh, less than 1% support when he finally, you know, ended his campaign in debt and, you know, just overall crisis uh, two months after he started running. Well, now we're two months into DeSantis's campaign. He's collapsing in the polls. He's having money troubles. His donors are getting frustrated. Um, and while he's certainly not as bad off as Walker was uh, after two months, it's, it's starting to look like he may be headed in that direction. And this is important for people to, to take note of because, um, you know, if DeSantis collapses as an opponent, then that Republican field looks pretty weak. Uh, as an alternative to Trump. And there does then uh, you know, become a possibility that pressure will be put on someone else to get in, someone like uh, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. Well, in Vanity Fair, Molly Jong Fask describes mm-hmm. him as a terrible politician with negative charisma, and the chances of him riding into the White House are looking less likely. He's aggressively dull and wooden, making his interactions with voters border on painful to watch. His head bobs in a strange and unnatural way, and he wears high-heeled cowboy boots. And then she, she, she then mentioned the analogies that you have written about, John. He makes Scott Walker look charming. <laughs> you know, it, it's true. It's a very funny thing that you would say that, because I've been around Walker and a little bit around DeSantis and seeing DeSantis in action. And uh, what I can tell you is that Walker had many, many flaws. I probably wrote more critical articles about him than just about anybody in the country. And yet um, Walker was a relatively capable retail politician. There's a lot of evidence that, that DeSantis is not. That, you know, literally when he gets face-to-face with people, it doesn't go well. Um, and, and he's just not a natural. And so, uh, yeah. He, he may well be worse than Walker. Um, 
although bizarrely right now Walker's trying to give DeSantis advice on how to run. Um, and that is, there's comedy in that, right? The person who is one of the worst losers in the history of the Republican party in a presidential primary contest is now trying to tell somebody else how to win it. And his advice is just trite as can be, you know, like, you know, go bold and stuff like that. So he's not really suggesting anything that's particularly useful, but I think that, um, there is a sort of a comedy to this because Walker's running around saying that, you know, he's, He's got experience in this regard. He knows his way about around running in, in Republican primaries. And the fact is, his firsthand experience of running in Republican primaries is how to, or a Republican nomination fight, is how to lose. And the one thing I suggest is that uh, uh, DeSantis appears to be developing some firsthand experience of his own. <laughs> well, <laughs> what I wonder about, though, is, is this in any way, I mean, first of all, of course, we need to add that Scott Walker, when he crashed and burned, he was up against mm -hmm. Donald Trump, who yeah. knocked them all off the island. The reality TV That's guy right. completely yeah, yeah, cleaned yeah. them all, and there was a whole bunch of them standing up there, and he made fools of all of them. But this time around, I wonder that Trump is looking more and more like the reincarnation of Mussolini or somebody like that. He's running a really proto-fascist type campaign and making outrageous statements about his need for vengeance and how he, mm -hmm. in effect, mm -hmm. is both the arsonist and the fire brigade, you know. He'll rescue you from the very problems that he, in fact, has exacerbated. So the question is, is what's happening here that the MAGA crowd, and which is most of the Republican Party, just are going for a, for a more authentic fascist than a guy that seemed to hit all the right buttons but did it in a cynical way. In other words, I, I guess I'm arguing that in many ways Trump is a natural fascist. Well, it's an interesting way of putting it, and there are, are you're not you're not the first to say that, Ian. Um, and so you've heard people uh, suggest that Trump has you know sort of a, a an authoritarian style uh, and and one that is is really unsettling to folks who are experts in uh, the history of the rise of authoritarian regimes, of fascist regimes, uh, and, and many people have written on this topic. And, uh, you know, it is, there's little doubt that, that Trump is, is sort of willing to go to extremes, um, you know, very casually. He doesn't, it, it does seem to come naturally to him to, to say things that are, are uh, deeply unsettling and deeply threatening. Um, and, you know, the thing is that, that uh, with DeSantis, DeSantis is, you know, a Harvard and Yale grad. He's a career politician. Um, you know, it's pretty clear that he's pulled a template out and is trying to fit into it, right? He's trying to be a certain kind of, you know, like a, a kind of a more radical candidate when his own record suggests that um, he's, he's really just a political careerist. And, and I do think it's possible that some of the more extreme people in the Republican base look at that and they say, you know, why, why would I go for, you know, a fake like Ron DeSantis when I can have a real thing with, with Donald Trump? But I also think there's something deeper in the Republican Party, and that is that this Republican Party is desperate to win. And so you've got people who really do have an authoritarian bent, but you've also got folks who are just, you know, kind of Main Street Republicans. And they, you know, they're they're willing to go with a, a range of potential candidates uh, in their desperation to win elections. Uh, by by the way, on a set of ideas that aren't very popular, uh, ranging from their economic to their social stance. So they're they're willing to go with a range of candidates. And um, the thing that's devastating for DeSantis is that he looks like a loser, right? Um, and. And even if maybe to you and I, Trump also looks like something of a loser, um, you know, DeSantis looks like more of a loser. And uh, and so I think that's that's becoming kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, a situation where DeSantis is trying hard. Um, but, you know, it's almost with every week that he runs, things get worse for him. And I think there's an open question of whether he makes it to the actual caucuses and primaries. Remember, Walker didn't make it. Walker had to drop out. And I'm not saying that DeSantis is going to drop out anytime soon, uh, but uh, boy, you know the the news in regard to him as you know the polls, the the money problems, the shedding of staff. I mean, it's a steady drumbeat of of really kind of tough stories. So, just in closing, then John Nichols, 
you mentioned that Trump may also lose, but my sense is that he, I mean he's clearly looks like he'll be the Republican nominee, and more and more the more you learn about his criminality and possibly even his treason, the more they love him and the more he goes up in the polls. So I, I don't think you can write him off. But just in closing, my greatest no. fear is the no labels people because they're going to really cut into the Democratic vote and they're getting on the ballot in all the key swing states. And last time around, Joe Biden only won by a little over 40,000 votes in the key swing states in terms of the Electoral College. So I think that's a greater fear is the no labels people well, helping Trump. No, I mean, I think you're you're legit in uh, in you know pointing to that concern. Look, we're in a point right now where uh, we've got a, a presidential politics that is pretty closely divided. And uh, Biden won by seven million votes, but the seven million votes weren't nationwide. You know, I mean, it was he had real strong bases of support uh, in places like California and New York, uh, Illinois. Uh, but in the battleground states, it was very, very close uh, in states like Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona. And as you go into 2024, of course, there's going to be concern about um, those potential close results and the possibility that 20, 30, 40, 50,000 votes going off to another candidate um, could uh, really undermine Biden's chances of winning those states. And that's that's to some extent what the concern was in 2016 with uh, both the Green and the Libertarian candidates. What I would suggest is this: there are always going to be third-party candidates, and for the Democrats, their their critical challenge is to be strong enough on the issues, to be coherent enough on the issues, and also to do more than simply talk about Donald Trump. They have to have a vision for if they get power, what they're going to do with it, and that has to be a compelling vision on economic and social and racial justice, saving the planet, and frankly, having a sane foreign policy. And, um, and if they've got that compelling vision, they're probably going to do okay in, you know, pulling together the votes, because there's going to be a clarity. If it's a, a Biden versus Trump race, everybody's going to know what this is about. And I think that on balance, that's going to move uh, an awfully lot of people um, toward one choice or the other. And so uh, I do think the third party issues are worthy of concern, worthy of paying attention to, especially as regards to no labels. But at the end of the day, I do think that that um, for better or for worse, we are very likely headed toward something that's quite a bit of a repeat of uh, 2020, uh, which is a situation where um, sort of a a clarity about what another Trump term might mean kind of gets people to focus on the the you know, marquee race, the Democrat versus Republican race. And that's that's my sense of where it's going to end up. Um, but uh, I also think that's why at the end of the day, all the stuff we're talking about with DeSantis and everybody else becomes a real factor, because I think there are a lot of people in the upper levels of the Republican Party who don't think that that in a clear Biden Trump race, that Trump will prevail. Um, I hear your concerns. I think they're legitimate. I don't think anybody should be casual about, you know, the seriousness of, of the issues at stake and the contest that's there. Um, but you are going to see the Republican establishment types still searching for an alternative to Trump. It's just the, the kind of bumbling of the DeSantis campaign suggests that they're going to have a very hard time finding that alternative. Well, John Nichols, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's a pleasure to join you and, and, and good to talk about all these issues. And again, I've been speaking with John Nichols, who's a national affairs correspondent for The Nation. He's written, co-written or edited over a dozen books on topics ranging from the histories of American socialism and the Democratic Party to analyses of U.S. and global media systems. And his latest book, co-written with Senator Bernie Sanders, is a New York Times bestseller, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. And he has an article at The Nation, Ron DeSantis is starting to look like a Scott Walker-level loser. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org 
where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by